So, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill me with your, spe your speaker, with your Holy Spirit to say the words that you would have me to say. I pray that you just help and guide and direct us, Lord, as with your Holy Spirit, to those that hear me today would hear you and not Jeremy Wallace. I pray that you would just guide and direct our thoughts. May it stay be stayed upon you, thee. And I pray that you'll bless us now in Jesus' name. I pray these things. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series on change entitled The Truth About Change. We started off by realizing the truth that change is going to happen, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, we just need to choose to trust that God is going to work things out for good in our lives. To that end, we talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul explained that we are not to be uh, changed like unto this world, <clears throat> molding ourselves after their examples, uh, but instead we are to be transformed by God from the inside out. And God uh, does his work of sanctification in our lives, and he does this re by renewing our mind through the means of grace, Bible reading, memorization, meditation, prayer, etc., and these Christian disciplines are the ways that God imparts his grace to us so that we begin to desire his will and receive the power to do it. Uh, when they, uh, we then uh, saw a way by an example of procrastination. Uh, and, and procrastination can really get us into trouble sometimes. When God tells us to do something, we need to obey right away and with a right, uh, uh, all the way and with a, heart, a right heart attitude. We saw that delayed obedience is disobedience, and that partial obedience is disobedience. And today I want to wrap up this series looking at this passage that we read just a moment ago in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to see how we can continue this path of change. How do we change? Is it by supernatural experience? Well, yes, in a way. We are do all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything good is going to come through God. But it must uh, begin with a very natural choice. What part do we play in our change? One thing that must happen before any change of any kind is made, and that is the decision to form the habit. Habits are formed by continual, consistent decision to do something. And they say on average it takes 66 times for you to do something before it becomes a habit. That's on average. They say that it can range anywhere from 14 to 250. <laughs> so that's encouraging. But uh, nevertheless, on average, it's 66 times. And that is 66 purposeful decisions to do something right. And do you want to change something? You're going to have to choose to do it at least 66 times consistently in order to form that habit. And though Christian growth isn't just about self-discipline, Habits are a powerful part of the change of our change as believers. Describing the holy life, theologian Richard Foster emphasizes virtues and habits, saying, "Virtue is a good ha is good habits we can rely upon to make our life work. Conversely, vice is bad habits we re uh, can rely upon to make our life not work, to make it dysfunctional, as we say. So, a holy life simply is a life that works." That's not to say that we are sanctified by works, but rather sanctification works in us and through us. Here in 1 Timothy, we see Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. Paul and Timothy traveled to Ephesus together, and uh, Paul uh, described, uh, or decided excuse me, to leave Paul, uh, Timothy in leadership there at the church at Ephesus. 
He had one purpose for Timothy staying in Ephesus, and that was to correct the church's doctrine and keep them on the right path. And he wanted the change in their lives to remain after they left, not be pulled away by false doctrine. There had been some influence from false teachers in the church. And so in chapter 4, Paul begins telling Timothy that in these latter times, people around us will try to pull us away from the faith, verses 1 through 3. Notice a few things here. Uh, first of all, there are spirits that seduce you away from the faith. That's what it says here. There are, uh, the devil and his demons are actively trying to pull us away from the faith. It says here, verse number 1, Now the Spirit expe uh, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Seducing spirits. And the doctrines of what? The devils, the demons. The, you know what that tells me? The devil has a doctrine. And he's trying to emphasize that and trying to stray Christians away from the doctrine of truth. It says speaking lies and hypocrisy. That word is uh, the uh, pseudo-logos. Uh, pseudo meaning false, or but it's 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 a uh, the idea that it's false, but closely close to the truth enough to pull people away. It's a deceptive and and resemblance. Logos means spoken word. It's the word that's used for the spoken word of God when He speaks. So it's pseudo. It's close to the truth, but it's not quite the truth. They'll be close enough to tr to the truth to trick people. And it talks about conscience being seared with a hot iron. They'll be able to feel the prick in their con uh, they won't be able to feel that prick in their conscience that they're doing the wrong thing any longer because they become seared in their heart. The influence that Timothy was dealing with is, was Gnosticism. And that taught that all earthly matter was sinful. So the extension of that thought is that you shouldn't marry, you shouldn't eat meats, etc. And any, anything that is matter is sinful, and so you shouldn't have anything to do with it as much as possible, including marital life. But Paul is telling Timothy to not let his people be seduced by these false teachings that are trying to come in. Why? Verse 3 he continues, and he says, Which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving to them which believe and know the truth. He says, For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. He says it's all good. God has made it all good. As long as you're giving it, uh, receiving it with thanksgiving. Verse 5, he extends this teaching even a little bit further. and He says the physical creations of this world all have some positive use. But even more so, those things used in thankfulness, prayerfulness, and, and uh, according to the word become holy, become sanctified, he says. The food we eat, all the matter around us, the blessings even of sexuality and marriage, everything that God has given us in this world can be used and uh, be more than just good. It is holy and used for his glory when used as it is intended. Paul then in verse number 6 tells Timothy, if he teaches his people this, he will be a good pastor to his people. He says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. 
nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Here in this verse, we see the first step in our continuance of change. How can we be continue in our change? And how can we continue to live the life that God has changed us? This church in Ephesus had seen a great change. Ephesus was a wicked city. There was a great change that happened in their lives. And Paul and Timothy came along and saw that, this, that there were others that were trying to pull them away from that change. And I believe that he gives here some principles that would help this church continue in the right path, continue in the change of sanctification that God wants to see every Christian be see in their lives. So the first thing he mentions here in this verse is number one, nourished by the word. Nourished by the word. He says in verse number six, nourished up in the words of faith. If we're going to be able to continue in our growth, we're going to have to create the habit of reading and gaining nourishment from God's word. They cannot possibly know how to grow in Christ without faithfully reading his word. Billy Graham famously said, if, if you are ignorant of God's word, you will always be ignorant of God's will. You'll never know God's will unless you are already doing the known will of God, which is staying in the word of God. The word nourished here in the scripture is the Greek word entrepho, uh, 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 which means to nourish or to train, to strengthen, to give power. But the word that's used here that's translated nourished is actually a compound Greek word. It's entrepho, and then it adds the, adds the word menos. At the end, the word menos is the word for mind. So it is a training of the mind, a nourishing of the mind, a strengthening of the mind. How is this done? Through the word of God. Howard Hendricks, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said, God wants to communicate with you in the 21st century. He wrote his message in a book. He asks you to come and study that book for three compelling reasons. It's essential for growth. It's essential for maturity. It's essential for equipping you, training you, so that you might be an available, clean, sharp instrument in his hands to accomplish his purposes. So the real question, he says, confronting you now, is how can you afford not to be in God's word? It's often been said about the Bible, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And how true that is. The times of our lives, whenever we stray from God's truth, and we stray into sin, those same times are the times that we have strayed away from God's word. But when we're faithful to read God's word, those are the times when we can be more faithful to standing for truth and right. The truth is, dusty Bibles lead to dirty lives. When we don't read the word, sin creeps in. We must be in God's word. One of the biggest dangers of the pastorate is falling into a dangerous habit of only studying the Bible for the sermon. Rather than having a separate time for your own growth and nourishment. It's a thing that pastors are famous for struggling with. Because so much time is built into building a sermon and, and, and such. And I spend hours and hours writing a sermon and preparing a sermon and, and such. And if I'm not careful, I get so overwhelmed with that that I neglect my personal time of growth. And that's common in a lot of pastors. 
But we need the word of God for us. Amen? How can I feed the flock if I'm not being fed myself? It's the same old illustration or example that's seen on the airplane. When the airplane goes down and the masks fall, those who have small children are to put their masks on first so that they can have the ability to put a mask on their child. The natural instinct is to reach for the mask for your child first. But if you pass out first, you're not going to be able to help them. Boy, it's the truth, the same thing. Those who are teaching, those who are parents, those who are pastors, those who are whatever the case may be, if you are leadership in any way, form or fashion, a grandmother, you're to be an example. You need to be in the Word of God. We need to desire that nourishment that only the Word of God can give. First Timothy, excuse me, First Peter chapter two, verse two. Peter says, "As newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby." The picture there is that newborn babe. That newborn babe desires the milk that they need to be able to grow, and they will let you know right away about their desire, won't they? You'll hear about it because their desire is strong. That's what we ought to desire, the sincere milk of the word. If we're not careful, the cares of this life and the influences of this world will cause us to lose our desire, our appetite for the word. When I was a child, I, I didn't like cheesecake. It was too rich, I guess. I just didn't really... I think it's one of those things maybe common with kids. I don't know. But uh, I, I, I uh, just didn't like it. Even as a young adult... Uh, just out of high school and such, I didn't like cheesecake. I went to New York City to uh, preach a deaf revival with two deaf friends of mine uh, in college, and uh, we went to a church and they had a big deaf ministry, and we preached a Monday, uh, or actually it was Thursday, Friday, let's see, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, revival, and uh, we preached that. and And the lady that was in charge of the deaf ministry of this church, this large church. Uh, she, you know, kind of the Sunday school teacher and helper and to get people there and they interpreted the sermons and things like that. She had won some kind of contest at the church that, uh, where they brought the most visitors, they'd get this cheesecake from a New York bakery. I mean, a new, a true New York cheesecake, supposed to be the best in the city. And uh, she got this, and, and she was a single lady. She invited us uh, over with some other deaf people, and, and she uh, offered to share this cheesecake with her with us. Of course, I'm a visitor at her home and everything, and I was like, well, I can't say no, you know, everything, but I don't really like cheesecake. And it was a tall cheesecake about that big. And uh, she gave me a slice about that big, thank goodness. But uh, uh, she, I, about, I just about cut it in half and stuffed it in my face and swallowed it just about whole. Uh, and I just didn't really care for it. But she saw that it was gone. She goes, oh, wow, you must have really liked that. Do you want another slice? Oh, no, thank you. I'm full, you know, you know everything. But, you know, it's funny. As I grew older and my changes developed, uh, you know, I, I began to love cheesecake. You know, it's still not peach cobbler, but, you know, it's still, it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's still good. I've yet to develop a taste for green beans. <laughs> Something just, you know, so vile, it just, it should not be consumed. But anyways, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, but as we grow, our taste matures and we begin to crave that which we used to reject. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14 talks about this a little bit. It says, for of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. 
For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be mature. You ought to crave the right things. You ought to be able to handle the more uh, difficult things. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of string, strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them are of a full age, mature, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Catch what that verse 14 is saying. They mature to the use of strong meat by the exercising of the use thereof. In other words, they had eaten the meat enough to where they were accustomed to it and they were craving it and wanting it. We want to grow and mature. We must be nourished by the word of God. Secondly, if we want to continue in our changes, that is our sanctification, we must secondly be nourished by teaching. Nourished by teaching. Verse 6, it says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. He says, and of good doctrine. The word translated doctrine is the Greek word didaskali. Uh, it means teaching or instruction. That's what it means. Not only has God given us the word in our hands so that we may be nourished by it, but he's also given us preachers who will help us to learn and grow and teachers. That's his plan. 1 Corinthians 1.21, it says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God chose to use preaching, the, the sounding forth of the truth of the word of God, as his plan for growth and salvation. And often as we, can, as we can, we need to place ourselves under the preaching of God's word. Sunday morning is not, uh, is not good enough to build a sanctified life. I'm sorry, but it's not. The early church gathered daily. Acts 5.42 says, And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. We don't meet every day, but we do meet three times on Sunday and once on Wednesday as well as various opportunities like ladies' Bible study and men's prayer breakfast where we have a devotion at that time. We need to avail ourselves of every opportunity that we can to learn from the preaching of God's Word. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as yet you see the day approaching. As we see all that's going on around us in the world today, can we help but say the day is approaching quickly? So we need to be all the more often, all the more faithfully assembling ourselves together. My pastor growing up used to always say we need three to thrive. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And that was the saying, three to thrive. Nothing is more important than getting your family into church as often as you can. I know you're tired. Many of you had worked all day, and I understand. Everyone that is here on Wednesday night has, especially has worked all day. But make it a priority to be in church every time the doors are open. Your children will take to excess what the parents allow in moderation. 
If you moderately miss church, your children will then grow up to excessively miss church. Make it a priority in your home. Make it, it's not even a, a question, are we going to church today? Of course we're going to church today. Make that in your home. If you're growing, if you're, if you're going to be growing in your life, you have to be nourished from God's word. And you have to be nourished by good doctrine, by good teaching. Thirdly, Paul warns Timothy to tell the people to avoid silliness, number three. Avoid silliness. Verse 7, he says, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. He tells us, to avoid, first of all, to avoid the profane. This is the opposite word. This is the absolute, um, I lost the word all of a sudden, opposite, whatever that word is. Uh, ap- uh, absolute opposite to the word holy or sacred. That is that which is hateful to God. You know, much of the world's entertainment today is hateful to God and his word. Be careful what you allow to influence you. Secondly, he tells them to refuse or avoid old wives' fables or old wives' tales. In the Greek, it's two words. The first meaning an old woman and the second mythos. It means a myth or a fable, that which is fabricated by the mind. But the word is actually very specific, not just a made-up story like a fiction story, but specifically a made-up story that is sophisticated and cunningly used to deceive other people. Paul's first refers to this in 1 Timothy 1.4, where he says, Neither give heed to fables or endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. It's not building up. It's just wasting time. And these superstitions included the Gnostic heresies that Paul discussed in the earlier verses. And Paul is liking them to old wives' tales. In the culture of the day, superstition and gossip were rampant and was passed by means of uh, old wives' tales. And Paul is warning Timothy to avoid the silly, unreliable heresy which does not honor God. Instead, focus your attention on the exercise of godliness. The world around us is offering us plenty of silly and unprofitable distractions. You know the word amusement? Do you know where that word comes from? The etymology of that word? The word muse of amusement means to ponder, to think, to be absorbed in thought. The prefix a or a means without or not. So amusement literally means without thought. (laughs) And that's true, really, isn't it? When we amuse ourselves, we're just wanting to just let it go and just let something else think for us. The positive of amusement is that we can relax and not think. The very strong negative of amusement is that when we are without thought, our thoughts can be filled by something. And we can be trained without even realizing it. What are you allowing to influence you? Be nourished by the word. Be nourished by teaching. Avoid the silliness around us. If we're going to continue in our growth, we must do these things. And then number four, we must be exercising to godliness. 
exercising to godliness. It says that in the last part of verse 6, but then it continues to verse 7. Well, I'm sorry, verse 7 it says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of that life that it now is, and of that which is to come. The word that Paul uses translated as exercise is one that we would probably kind of recognize. It's the Greek word gymnazo. It sounds familiar a little bit, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit close to some of the words that we use. We get our word gymnasium from uh, 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 gymnasia, which is a form of this word. It's a place of exercise. Uh, Paul is using a different word to say the same thing as before, what he said about exercising or nourishing, when he said nourishing. It's a similar word. Uh, It is exercising or training ourselves. Now he says training ourselves unto godliness. Have you ever played baseball uh, maybe or softball and Maybe you had a coach who taught you how to hold the bat or your father. I remember my dad teaching me how to hold the bat and, uh, you know, not hold it way up at the top, you know, and, you know, just and where to how to hold my stance. And, uh, you know, when you step up to the plate, he tells you, hold your bat like this, bend your head this way, spread your legs this way in your stance. The coach guided you in the nuance of the sport, training you in the right way to play and position your body in the correct stance. God's word trains us in right living. We aren't told only what not to do, but we're also told what we should do instead. That's what I love about the verse. It's not in my notes here, but I'll take a side note here. Uh, That's what I love about that verse, uh, 1 Timothy, where it talks about uh, the... uh, Oh boy, I just lost it all of a sudden. Maybe it's 2 Timothy. Well, anyways, um, help me. Uh, I, I'm not even giving you any help to help me. Uh, it's uh, Oh, my brain just went completely dead. There it is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. There we go. It's the one that we all know what just completely left my brain. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And I love this. Thing. I love the truth of these four things that he says. Because it's not just the things that he tells us not to do. It also tells us the things we should do. So he says, all scripture is given to us by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That is the things, teaching us the things that are right. For reproof, teaching us the things that are wrong. For correction, teaching us how to make the wrong right. And for instruction in righteousness, how to keep the right right. Amen? The word of God is full. And it contains everything that we need in our lives to be able to teach us what is right, what is wrong, how to make the wrong right, and how to keep the right right. It's everything, amen? And God's word is profitable to train us, to exercise us in godliness. Paul says for the Christian to exercise thyself rather unto godliness. He tells us bodily exercise has profit. It has limited benefit. It is profitable a little bit. But not only is, uh, but godliness, however, exercising godliness is profitable, he says, in all things. It doesn't have just a little bit of profit. It has profit in all things. Not only for the life that now is, but also that which is to come. 
We must train ourselves by forming the habits and the disciplines of the Christian life. We must read our Bibles every day. We must put ourselves under the preaching of God's word every time that we can. We must carve out a specific time for dedicated prayer. By the way, if you're not, if a lot of people aren't able to be here Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, or maybe you work or you have other obligations. I understand that, okay? And I'm not beating anybody up, okay? I'm not beating anybody up. But I want to say this. Put yourself under the preaching of God's word as often as you can. If you can't be here, listen on live stream. If you say, well, I've had enough of Pastor Wallace, find someone else. And listen to their live stream, as long as they're good and right preaching. Amen? But get into the Word of God and put yourself under preaching. If all you do to feed yourself is Sunday morning, you're just going to starve spiritually. Dedicate yourself to this. Carve out a specific time for prayer. You know, sacrifice with fasting so that we can turn our focus on God so that we may have the spiritual strength to be able to deal with the blows that the enemy is trying to blow our way. We need to form the habit of Bible memorization so that we have the ammunition to use against our enemy. We have to form the habit of Bible meditation so that we can more clearly and thoroughly hear from God and internalize the truth and be strengthened to be able to obey Him. We have to exercise these means of grace so that we can do what God has called us to be, and that is a life of godliness. Paul uses this image of the athlete. We realize that a skilled athlete is, uh, has natural ta- with natural talent will only go so far. Someone who is skilled in, as an athlete will only go so far with natural talent alone. They have to train their muscles to better themselves. In the 2014 season, the New York Giants wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. seemed to do the impossible by catching a football with one hand. It's been called the greatest catch of all time. I have a clip of that. I want to I show you. Watch this. Here's the running back. Play action. And Manning's going to heave one. Is, oh, there's a flag. Beckham a one-handed catch. How in the world? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And Brandon Carr was back there. I mean, he is insane. How do you make that catch? Oh, my goodness. This is sick. Put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. number 39. You have to be kidding me. That is impossible. That is absolutely impossible what he just did. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen in my life. It's in the conversation. Wow. But however, you know, the catch wasn't just luck. It didn't just happen. Watch this next clip. It was something that he did over and over and over and over in practice. Over and over again, he practiced a one-hand catch. It wasn't just something that he thought he could do and just tried it. It's something that he practiced over and over 
and over. It seemed natural, but it came from practice that made a habit. A talented person in an area of life, an athlete who can catch a football with one hand, or a musician who seems to play an instrument like it's an extension of their body. It's impressive, but it's not just luck. It's not just natural talent alone. There's a habit behind their success. The constant practice of catching a ball or the hours spent repeating the same scale on the instrument shows us the power of a habit. Habits that cultivate spiritual formation bring about and continue change in our lives. This doesn't happen overnight. Or will it ever change us into perfect people? No. However, over time, habits become second nature. And we begin to see the Lord transform us from the inside out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, the power of your word. If we truly understood how powerful it is to change our lives and to make us more like what you want us to be, Father, we would really focus more upon you and your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us now today, Father, as we go our separate ways, Lord. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us, Father, to commit to you right now that we will work harder at installing these habits of these Christian disciplines, these means of grace in our lives. Reading the Bible faithfully, Bible memorization, Bible meditation, Bible study, prayer, fasting, all of these things. Lord, if there's some area, Lord, I'm doing pretty good in Bible reading, but I'm not being real faithful in prayer. May we commit to you today, Lord, I'm going to install that habit in my life by faithfully choosing to do it until it becomes a godly habit in my life. Help us, Lord, to have the goal to become better for you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. I pray that you guide and direct us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a verse of invitation.